0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast from the BOI charity that explores the important ideas and intellectual trends that are shaping the world today. This is our second podcast in the series on race and racism, the theme of our recent Academy Online event. In this episode we feature the lecture Historical Racism and the New Language of Racialization. At a time when questions related to race have very much come to the forefront of political discussion, this talk examines what the new anti-racism stands for and argues that it represents a break from the anti-racism of the recent past and that the time has come instead to adopt a universalist humanist perspective. The lecturer is Dr. Alka Segal who is a founding signatory of Don't Divide Us, the campaign that takes a stand against the divisive obsession with people's racial identity. Alka is an educator, researcher and writer, and is author of the book What Should Schools Teach? Disciplines, Subjects and the Pursuit of Truth.
1: The main argument I want to make is that in today's discourse, Race and by extension, anti racism have been reconceptualized, and furthermore, the terms are being redefined in ways that make solidarity, personal, social, or political, very difficult, if not impossible. So, obviously, I'm going to be arguing uh, against the new anti racism. I think it's a very peculiar thing that at a time when Britain's population probably probably in no small part due to post-war immigration, has never been more ethnically diverse, and relations are relatively civil, along comes a theory, now widely recognised as critical race theory, that tells us that actually reality is the opposite of what we think it is. That underneath the generally peaceable character of most people's lives, there is a seething bed of aggressive racism, of unbridled white privilege and power, bordering on the psychotic, and if unchecked, it can lead to the literal and metaphorical erasure of black lives it's no wonder many people are perplexed and a psychologist i was recently speaking to noted most people generally act in good faith they don't see themselves as or want to be seen as racists and so often concepts like unconscious bias come to be sort of accepted by default if you think to yourself well i can't remember having said anything racist or been racist in any conscious way well then maybe i've done it unconsciously maybe i am an unconscious racist for me the utter degradation of the new anti-racism was recently exemplified in the channel 4 program that i expect many of you have seen the school that tried to end racism here diversity experts were brought in to teach black pupils to teach people pupils that black is white and white is black children who played together as equals were told that they are not equal at all the more black people admitted their disadvantages and feelings of upset the more they were applauded by the teachers and diversity experts the more white pupils accepted descriptions of themselves as privileged the closer they were to becoming a good ally and winning some measure of patronizing sympathy and for me, even given the fact that it was a TV programme and therefore had to meet several possibly conflicting goals, it was grotesque and painful to watch. And I was left wondering how on earth is this even possible? Before addressing this, I want to provide a sketch of what the new anti-racism is and some of its key concepts. Then I want to look at why it's so influential. And then at this point, I'm going to do a flashback to what anti-racism meant in the fairly recent past when it was configured more around working-class solidarity. And I'm not doing this to sort of harp back to the good old days, but rather to draw out the contrasts with what it has come to mean today. So today's anti-racism then, the concepts of white privilege, unconscious bias, black oppression, microaggressions and whiteness reveal the psychological provenance of the new anti-racism. If only Kehinde Andrews, a professor um, uh, in Black black Studies at uh, Birmingham City University, if only his Psychosis of Whiteness, The Celluloid celluloid Hallucinations of Amazing Grace and Bell, published in 2016, had remained within the confines of his post-humanist critical social race film and everything else theory, a delectation to be discussed with himself and students. Things might have been better for us, although perhaps not great for academia. Let's look at some of these context, concepts a bit more closely. Whiteness is no longer just a color, but a psychosis rooted in a fundamental inequality based on skin color. White people who have historically occupied most high status positions in political and public life and other positions of power, cannot possibly know the experience of a black person. When we have white privilege. This is slightly trickier, because there are so many statistics that show that it is often in fact white males who are at the bottom of the pile. So some creative thinking is called for. Although some people admit white people can suffer from poverty and other disadvantages, they cannot have experienced life as a black person and therefore they have not experienced life as part of a minority. Black people in Britain are a numerical minority and from this it is assumed that their experiences of life even if they're socially and economically successful, we'll always be tainted by this experience and the psychological depredations that it entails. And then we have the notion of being a good ally. This presupposes that white people cannot be neutral or bystanders in a context where black people are being subjected to such egregious day in day out racial harassment. The harassment may be subtle, It's no longer the explicit racialised slurs or the humiliating treatment at the hands of immigration police or being frostily told that the room for rent has been taken. No, today's racism has such wily and subtle forms that actually many of us can't really see it. But this only proves how ill-educated and unaware the majority of us are. And to address this, we need to educate ourselves. But by this, today's anti racists don't mean going and talking with people of different colours and chatting with them, getting to know them, or reading widely, or thinking deeply, and maybe writing your thoughts freely in a way that's true to yourself. No, what they mean by educating yourself means to uncritically read and accept, or say you've read and love a small number of books that share the same meaning, the same message. For black people, the message is we need to re-examine, examine and re-examine our feelings and memories, sifting for all those moments of self-doubt caused by words or acts that have remained uncalled out. Deeds have been excused by giving the benefit of the doubt or maybe just ignored. And if you're white, the message is educate yourselves by reading books which reveal your privilege to you and embrace any amount of monitoring and positive discrimination, but most importantly, White people need to understand that to question the testimony of a black person is not an acceptable part of any attempt to try and get to a truth or establish common understanding. It is actually a threat to black subjectivity. Doe Lodge, author of the bestseller, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People about Race, has this to say about being about being having a conversation with a white person. Their intent is often not to listen and learn but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me and to rebalance the status quo. And this is really problematic because if to talk and question is accepted as an exertion of unwarranted power, then there can be no basis for any level of communication, never mind solidarity. The new anti-racism says race is a construct, but it's the construct the the diversity experts and academics need to justify their existence as anti-racist experts, who we obviously need to educate ourselves. Moreover, race is essentialized. It's given the authority of a fact of nature. And in a banal sense, it's true to say a white person can't experience life as a black person, but this is true of, of any of us and all of us. We don't have full or direct access to anyone else's interiority. And that's why over the course of human history, we've created a symbolic culture the most important part of which is the language itself. So if we accept language as a tool of oppression, as Edo Lodge and others claim, then we can contribute nothing but our atonement. And this is what educate yourself ultimately means. May a cowper recant or suffer the consequences. My objection, or one of them at least, to this narrative is the reduction of human experience and subjectivity to being, the, to being wholly determined by a single factor or variable. In reality, we have multiple affiliations and crisscross between groups we are put into by external agencies and those we choose for ourselves. We can be both a minority and a majority simultaneously, depending on what factor or variable we're giving precedence to. For example, a black student at a campus is a minority if the variable is skin color, but the same student will be a majority if you're looking at age as the main variable. As I said at the start, if limited to academia, all this would be bad enough, but it's even worse when these ideas spread out of this enclave, across the boundary of sacred and profane knowledge and into our social world. And here we see, for example, the 2019 Equalities and Human Rights uh, Commission report on racial harassment in universities, which is the basis of this week's Universities UK report. And this defines racism as unwanted behaviour related to a protected characteristic that violates a person's dignity or behaviour that creates a hostile environment. That's literally it, that is how racism is defined. Completely subjective, there is no objective guide as to what might constitute violating personal dignity or make an environment hostile. This is left to the implied victim to interpret their own feelings and nothing more is required. And often the same approach is applied to scholarship and research where the normal obligations can be ignored. It's deeply worrying that a major public educational institution should propose far reaching changes on the basis of this kind of um, research or scholarship. They could, one part of their um, uh, research was a call for student responses, which elicited 581 responses the total, number, the total student cohort for that year, 2018 to 19 was 2.38 million. So by any established criteria or standards of empirical research, this is pretty ludicrous. Today's anti-racists then are not the bearers of new enlightened knowledge. Their ideas are more like beliefs, which try and garner a bit of intellectual status, even though their knowledge claims fail to meet established standards of reliable knowledge and instead they rely on poetic rhetorical devices, highly selective examples from history or statistics in order to explain contemporary reality. Here's another sample from Irene Edo Lodge. To talk with defiant white people is frankly a dangerous task for me, and she can't continue to exhaust herself through the efforts. Generation after generation of white wealth amassed from the profits of slavery compounded, seeping into the fabric of British society like mud or blood or both. Poetic, maybe, but a self-evident truth, definitely not. Her prose is good, showing her academic background in literature, but her use of history is highly selective and her aim, well, whatever it is, includes a heavy dose of claiming epistemological authority and ethical status by presenting herself as an imminent existential danger. Now, one important consequence of this weakness in this new anti-racism is that its proponents end up having to protect their beliefs through tactics of moral delegitimization, where any challenge is called out as an attack on black people. If you don't agree, you must be a racist. In short, no matter how well-intentioned, there's only one way this can go, and that's to be more authoritarian, and the consequences of this are being felt by more people beyond the confines of, of universities. HR departments in private companies, libraries, community centres and charities are accepting these highly contentious beliefs from dodgy academic discourse and plonking them wholesale into what they see as improved professional practice. New codes of speech and behaviour abound. Layers Mm -hmm. of new personnel and diversity experts are flourishing. In some cases, this might just be purely performative, but there are many instances where people's livelihoods and reputations have been threatened for falling foul of these codes, not just by Twitter mobs, but by employers, admin teams, and most worryingly of all, their own colleagues. And they're not, people aren't being disciplined for deliberate provocation or telling a risque joke even, but simply for questioning, for asking whether there might not be an alternative reading list on that professional development day. Could there not be an alternative way to understand someone's words or actions? Simply for questioning. So it's little wonder that critics of the new anti-racism have compared it to a virulent form of religious fundamentalism, heavy on original sin and light on redemption. So why, we might be asking, have such a set of divisive, intellectually weak and ethically dubious beliefs come to have such influence? There's a longer answer to this, which is to do with political disenchantment, long-standing philosophical epistemological questions, and more recent developments within education, but perhaps save that for later. The short answer is that today's anti-racists have the backing of sections of our political class and institutional guardians. The ideas of Lodge, Hirsch, D'Angelo and others, although logically incoherent and undersubstantiated, are well suited to the needs of today's political and cultural elites. Why, we might ask, because our elites stand compromised after decades of technical managerialism, a new petty bourgeois class who desperately needs some legitimacy. All that monitoring and mind-numbing anti-intellectualism could never convincingly be justified by appeals to greater efficiency, or gaining one point on some league table. But perhaps our institutional desperados think they can borrow a bit of ethical gloss from being on the right side of history via today's anti-racism. After all, technocrats and anti-racists both have a strong impulse to control people's behaviour. And here I think you can see where it really is uh, an elitist um, enterprise. Because no matter how uncompelling the ideas are, they target white people, the numerical majority, And as has often been the case in history, not just in Britain, the majority are seen as a potential problem from the point of view of the elites who are, like the black activists today, also a numerical minority. So even if politicians, CEOs and chief executives have to suck it up a bit on account of their white privilege, that's cheap at the price for what they get in return. In addition to some measure of ethical kudos, mainly amongst themselves, they have an ideology that ensures an ethnically diverse working class remains divided, and that the majority is put on the defensive before they can even speak. You can see from the point of view of the elites, this is quite handy. To me, it suggests new new anti-racism isn't something that can be dismissed as annoying, but basically secondary or a diversion from real class politics. I think like Walter Ben-Michaels and Adolf Reed, this is a new a form of new class politics, not in the way of perhaps um, some of the old left understand it, where anti-racism was the agent of radical disruption to the status quo. In today's context, it's anti-racism, not racism, that is the agent of restoration of the political, of the political status quo, not its radical subversion so moving on then to the flashback what was anti-racism in the recent past and i hope the important differences will become clear historical anti-racism was based on a theoretical understanding of capitalism as a way of ordering society where the main differentiation lays in your relationship to the means of production and reproduction to give bourdieu his due this central cleavage is expressed concretely in the existence of different classes inequalities are relational but where you stand in such an order can have important empirically observable effects from wages, the right to own property, to vote and even physical stature. A capitalist social order could under certain conditions grant rights. Formal rights such as equality before the law, the right to vote, freedom of movement and assembly and so on. They were hard won gains but capitalism being capitalism was unable to grant these rights to all people some were excluded and for others the rights remained more rhetorical than substantive. But the point is biological facts, facts of skin colour were really contingent to the substance of anti-racism and in the long past the unlucky minorities have been Irish, Jewish and working class people. There's no, there's no kind of inevitable link between skin colour and racism or denial of rights. The problem for our historical anti-racist then was how to ensure that these formal rights were were extended to all. More radical radical of us, perhaps, hoped that in this process the limitations of formal rights per se would become evident and spur on the recognition that something more revolutionary was needed. But there was common ground with others, including more liberal anti-racists, in that we shared a strategic goal to extend formal rights wherever we found them to be missing. It was grounds for solidarity. One example of how this anti-racism was connected to solidarity is, is um, that of the Grunwick strike. 1976, Asian women at the Grunwick film processing factory in London, realized two things. Their pay was not the same as other workers who were mainly men. And also they didn't like being treated in a derogatory way due to their ethnicity and skin color. They started a strike. Jay Desai and her colleagues knew that to win better pay, and in the process greater respect, they would need to talk across lines of colour. They used all the political, intellectual and ethical resources they had to hand to do just this. They persuaded an intellectually reluctant trade union and other groups to support them in what turned out to be a two year strike. The development of this solidarity was expressed through the continuous support on picket lines and also a mass demonstration of over 20,000 people. And it wasn't just the numbers that were important here, but what they believed they were doing and how they went about doing it. In the end, they didn't win, but their efforts improved conditions for women who stayed on and likely contributed to the 1983 amendment, amendment of the Equal Pay legislation for women that's improved wages for women since. That was anti-racist solidarity then. And I'm not saying it was perfect. The women did lose after all, and not, you know, uh, not everybody had a full equality in every sense. And I'm not saying that we can or should want to return to the past, but I do think we, we would do well to revisit some of the core principles and values um, of this historic anti-racism. I think it's true that we can be differentiated by all sorts of things, including our skin color, and these may well influence the way we experience the same social reality. But the point is, first of all, we do have a social reality in common. We don't have one social reality over here for blacks and one over there for whites. Second, we have symbolism. We have language, informal and formal knowledge. We have art, popular culture, and many more things where aspects of our experience can be shared. Most importantly, when we have politics, the space where individuals meet as equal citizens to articulate, argue, sometimes ridicule, offend, be offended with the aim of persuading. And in the very act of doing this, we establish the common ground that makes solidarity possible cannot do this if communication is ruled out of court or morally delegitimized from the start. In fact, if we allow this to be accepted as a norm, then very little that's progressive in the sense of making life better in general will be possible at all. And lastly, my fir- third and final point is that we can decide that as a black person or as a white person, The noun person is more important than the adjectives black or white. In a more philosophical tenor, it's called universalism. And it's needed for for solidarity and it's needed for democratic politics. And that is why the new anti-racism, in my view, has to be challenged. It has to be challenged and exposed for the reactionary, divisive, anti-human and elitist ideology that it is.
0: You've been listening to the lecture Historical Racism and the New Language of Racialization," given by Dr Alka Sagal-Cuthbert, which was recorded at the Academy Online event Race and Racism. The next podcast in this series will feature the lecture Race Riots 1919-1992 from the First World War to the Culture War by Dr Cheryl Hudson. To make sure you don't miss any episodes of the series, then do subscribe to Ideas Matter podcast on your favourite feed. And for more details of the Academy event where this lecture was recorded and to access a series of recommended readings to help you explore the themes in greater depth, have a look at the accompanying notes to this podcast or visit the Academy at our website, theboi.co.uk. Finally, if you're able to give a financial donation to support this podcast or any of the BUI Charities projects, then head over to our website and hit the donate button. Thanks.